0: Hello and welcome back to the UFO and Aliens podcast. I'm your host, Rick Black. Today, we are going down under to talk about a UFO, or should I say UFOs, that had hundreds of witnesses. It has been called the Melbourne 350, as well as the Westall incident, because it occurred at the Westall School in Melbourne, Australia. And it was seen by hundreds of students and teachers. But first, I want to tell you about a UFO sighting roughly 650 miles from Melbourne, at Royal Australian Air Force Base at Womera. Not far from there, the British were testing nuclear weapons in the Great Victorian Desert. I have found that many UFO sightings occur around bases that have nuclear weapons, so it didn't surprise me when I found a recently released confidential report from that area. The report is dated July 24th, 1960, and it is titled Unidentified Light Wewak Area. It was reported by a constable that a balloon had burnt in the air. The balloon officer checked, and all the balloons were intact. The constable was questioned, and he said that his attention was drawn to a light shining on the ground. He described the light as a white light going from east to west, and as it got closer, It got larger and turned red. Because of where it was, he thought it was a balloon on fire, and so that's what he reported. He said it burned for 30 seconds. Another constable saw the light from a different location. He didn't see it shine on the ground. He didn't think too much about it until he received a phone call asking if he saw it. The light was observed by four other base personnel who all gave the same description. Inquiries were made to see if any firing had taken place or if anyone witnessed a meteor in the area, but no one had. Scientific personnel who would have the know-how were questioned in case the light was the result of a practical joke. Assurances were given that no member of the scientific parties were responsible. Mr. Harry Turner, health physics officer who possesses an inquiring mind, made an independent investigation and extensive calculations. He is of the opinion that the light was not the result of a natural phenomenon, but was caused by an unidentified flying object, either a cone from a satellite or a flying saucer. It is felt that all avenues of inquiry at Maralinga now have been covered and that it is not possible to positively identify the source of the light. It is felt that all avenues of inquiry at Marilinga have now been covered and that it is not possible to positively identify the source of the light. It is felt, however, that the light was the result of either a meteor or static electricity. Those last two sentences actually contradict one another. Make up your mind. Either you can identify it or you can't. If you've been listening to me, You may remember me talking briefly about a red orb hovering over the gate at Malmstrom Air Force Base in Montana in 1967 and the 10 nuclear rockets suddenly going offline. There is definitely a connection here. Whenever we have nuclear weapons, either stored or tested, there is a good possibility of UFOs being seen in the area. It seems that the occupants of the UFOs, have an interest in how we deal with this technology. Many people believe they are trying to warn us about using nukes. That seems plausible to me for sure. Six years later, in April 1966, a young engineer was taking pictures in his mother's garden in Baldwin. A flashing object caught his attention, so he looked up and saw a flying saucer. Polaroid camera in hand. He takes a couple of quick pictures and they become some of the most famous UFO pictures ever taken. The UFO was silver and shaped like an upside-down bowl. It hovered motionless for a few minutes, then it turned on its side, and, as the man described, shot off to the north like it was shot out of a gun. Air Force officers showed up at his doorstep, asking for every detail of his experience. They had pictures of different things, of similar things, And they also had a book for him to look through. I guess kind of like a mug book. Which is interesting. Where did they get the pictures of the different kinds of flying saucers to put in the book? They asked him to pick out what he saw. The book didn't have exactly what he saw, but he got as close as he could and showed them. They told him it was an unidentified flying object. It looked like a bowl on its side, had no windows, and silver in color. Going back to this picture, it shows the craft on its side, in the air above the house. It looks like a silver bowl with small protrusions on both the top and the bottom. Zooming in, you can see the reflection of the trees and the chimney on the bottom of the craft. This thing looks real. I don't know how hard it would be to create a hoax with the Polaroid. Maybe you could do something with the film before you put it in the camera and take a picture. But I don't think so in this case. The details of the craft are too clean. Most pictures of UFOs are grainy, but this one is pretty clear. Just look up Baldwin, Melbourne, UFO picture 1966. There are a lot of debunkers trying to explain away the picture. You can read all of those and make up your own mind. It's all really interesting and fun to read. So, four days later, in suburban Melbourne, There is an incident at Westall Primary and Westall High Schools where more than 200 students, as well as a dozen teachers, saw flying saucers. For some, it all started when a student threw the door of the classroom open and said, There's things in the sky. There's flying saucers in the sky. And the whole class runs down the hall and out into the oval. And sure enough, there were three flying saucers up there. The students witnessed them darting around and performing maneuvers that seemed impossible. One of the flying saucers actually landed and was on the ground for more than 20 minutes before taking off. One of the students, Terry Peck, was out playing cricket on the oval when she and her classmates noticed these three craft hovering above the school. She said it was a bit unusual. They weren't aircraft. And then after about 10 minutes, they saw one go down into an area around their school that they called the Grange. The Grange was a wooded area near the school. It also had a clear grassy area within it. The students were very familiar with the Grange because that is where they did their cross-country runs. So Terry took off running toward the Grange. After she jumped the fence, she looked up and it was right there on the ground in front of her. She was one of the first ones to get there, but she wasn't the first. There was a little girl lying on the ground because she had fainted, and another one that was hysterical. Tanya was the girl that was hysterical, and that name is significant. You'll see in just a minute. Terry describes the craft as being about one and a half times the size of a normal family sedan. That's a sedan in the 1960s, not today, I imagine. It was round silver in color, and it had lights along the bottom of it. She didn't notice any windows. It gave off a little heat, and she heard a low buzzing sound coming from it. She just looked at it, and after a few minutes, it raised up in the air, about 12 feet above her head, turned on its side, and shot up into the air, disappearing almost instantly. Jackie Argent saw a flying saucer that day, but only recalls there being one. She was behind the oval with Tanya when they noticed it in the sky. It did some maneuvers, which were very strange, which is why her attention was drawn to it in the first place. Then it came down over the grange. They could see it coming down, so they took off after it. Tanya got there first and came back to Jackie screaming, so they both ran back to the school. Jackie never got to the Grange to see the UFO sitting on the ground. When they got back to the school, Tanya was taken away in an ambulance, and that's the last time Jackie ever saw her, which is really strange. I got the impression that they were really good friends. Jackie checked on her at the hospital, but couldn't see her. So she went to her house the next day. She's been to her house numerous times, but this time was different. This time, an English speaking woman answered the door and said there was no Tanya there and there had never been a Tanya living there. The problem with that is, Tanya's parents didn't speak English to start with. Jackie thought they were Yugoslavian. So Jackie says, I know she's here. I've been here many times. And they said, No, you're mistaken. She never heard from her again. A researcher found Tanya many years later and reports that Tanya prefers to stay anonymous and not be involved in anything at all. She said that she has no memory of what had happened, and there was another story about her parents putting her in a convent. That's the rumor, anyway. Jackie described the craft as silver in color and round. It came down, but she didn't see it. She did, however, see the marks it made on the ground later that day. She saw it in the air before it disappeared, and there were five jet fighters in the air chasing it. When the UFO took off, it made the jets look as if they were standing still. Joy Clark was twelve and a half when she saw the UFOs. She was in science class, and a student flung the door open and said, There's things in the sky! There's flying saucers in the sky! So they all ran down the hall and out onto the oval and saw, yeah, there were flying saucers in the sky. Joy saw three of them, but it took her some time to process what she was looking at. She had never seen anything like that before. She was interviewed by Channel 9 in front of the school, and a man walked up to her. He was dressed in blue, so she thought that he may have been uh, from the Air Force or a police officer. He put his hand on her shoulder and told her to stop talking and go back into the school. Then he turned around to the reporter and the cameraman and told them to both go away. Not long after the sighting, the army arrived across from the school in three jeeps. Soldiers jumped out of the back wearing camouflage gear. They were around the school for quite a while. There was a special assembly at the school where the students were all told That they hadn't seen anything. Guess what? It was a weather balloon. And all the students were told to never talk about the event. If you talk about it, you'll get into trouble. Joy got detention because she was interviewed by Channel 9. She says emphatically that it was definitely not a weather balloon. It was a UFO. They were used to seeing things in the air because they weren't that far from Morabin Airport, so they would see little planes flying around all the time. This wasn't like anything they'd seen before. The Air Force showed up about 25 to 30 minutes after the UFOs. People have dismissed the event as the fertile imagination of children. Really? Over 200 children having the same experience and not one of them saying anything different? They were told that flying saucers don't exist. But 50 years later, they all know what they saw, and some of them are coming forward. I guess they're going to get detention. Researcher Shane Ryan has been working on this case for 10 years. He's interviewed 96 witnesses about the flying saucers that they saw. 140 people have come to him regarding the marks left behind by the UFO. That's a lot of witnesses. But again, they were children at the time. So what about the teachers? They were there too. Why haven't we heard from them? Well, we have. A science teacher has come forward anonymously. He says, It was not a balloon. It was not a mirage. There was something physical in the sky. It was silver. It could hover. It could move slowly. It could move rapidly. Eventually, it moved to the other side of the oval and down behind some pine trees. He was not able to use his science background to give a rational explanation of the events that day at Westall School. Here's the reason the staff have remained silent after all these years. Shortly after the incident, there was a knock on his door one night, one in uniform, and they asked for his description of what he'd seen. He was then told that he hadn't seen anything, that he'd made it all up, possibly because he was drunk and they'd have to report that fact to the education department and he would lose his job. On top of that, He was told he would be prosecuted under the Official Secrets Act. And he was told that there wasn't anything there when he knew there was and that he had to keep quiet about it. Why did he have to keep quiet? Of course there was something there. So, was it a cover-up, a top-secret military program? Or was it a flying saucer? Nobody saw anyone inside these UFOs there were no windows visible to anyone. So based on that, you could rationalize that it could be a balloon. The Hybel Project was a joint U.S.-Australian initiative to monitor atmospheric radiation levels using large silver balloons equipped with sensors between 1960 and 1969. Keith Basterfield says a runaway balloon from Hybel that's high-altitude balloon, project, was likely the answer. Each test balloon lifted a 180-kilogram payload consisting of an air sampling and telemetry unit in a gondola and was followed by a light aircraft tasked with tracking it and triggering its 12-meter parachute via radio signal. So that would explain why witnesses saw planes in the air at the same time. But what the witnesses described doesn't quite line up with a slow-moving balloon. And if one did go down on the ground, even 10-year-old children will be able to tell the difference between a balloon and a disc-shaped craft. In a research paper, Mr. Basterfield said a close review of all available documentation including that search through freedom of information laws, pointed to Heibel flight number 292 as the real culprit. But despite government archival records showing the results of numerous Heibel test flights, the paperwork for the launches for the day before Westall appear to have been lost or destroyed. Of course they are. The documents are always lost or destroyed. What is strikingly missing is a memo reporting on the actual four launches for April 1966, one of which was scheduled for April 5, 1966, the day before Westall. So we have no official knowledge of where Flight 292 went. If this was a Heibel balloon then there would be documentation about this information. This occurred 50 years ago. Why is the information from the government agencies not available? In 1868, an alderman in Parramatta, New South Wales, Frederick Birmingham, spotted what he described as an arc floating in the sky before landing in Parramatta Park. On January 22, 1954, three people in Gawler, South Australia, spotted a white UFO flying overhead, followed shortly by Royal Australian Air Force Jets. On January 19, 1966, a farmer from Tully, Queensland, reported seeing a large saucer-shaped object as well as a so-called nest of reeds in the swamp where the UFO was spotted. On October 21, 1978, 20-year-old Frederick Valentich disappeared while piloting a small Cessna 182 aircraft over Bass Strait, to King Island in Tasmania. Valentich was a flying saucer enthusiast and informed Melbourne Air Traffic Control he was being accompanied by an unknown craft. On January 21, 1988, a family reported seeing a UFO while traveling across another boar plane in South Australia. The family described the object as a big glowing ball. On March 10, 1993, 69-year-old Eric Thomason took a picture of a craft hovering around Maslin Beach. On August 8, 1993, a Melbourne woman, Kelly Cahill, said she saw a large craft hovering over the road as she and her husband drove through the Dandenong Ranges near Belgrave, Victoria. UFOs are reported all over the world. There are hundreds of reports of all descriptions lights, triangle shaped, saucer shaped. A lot of these reports are explained away as misidentified natural phenomena. Some remain unexplained. What really muddies the waters are the hoaxers. So when one of these UFO reports comes in, it must first be scrutinized. Most people that report these things, are ridiculed and dismissed, so a lot of people simply don't report them. Then we have the government. Do they have information? Some people seem to think so. Whistleblower David Grush definitely thinks so. People went bananas when he made his statements. If you want my opinion on the whole David Grush whistleblowing thing, listen to episode 8. If you've already listened to Episode 8, but you have something to add, just send me an email. I would love to hear from you. The deeper we get into this, the more confusing it becomes. Episode 11. Now I know, I've been going way back to report some really old UFO stories. But I think it's important to be familiar with as much of the UFO past as possible. There's a lot out there to explore, but what's the truth? Which ones are hoaxes? Which ones are government disinformation? The more we learn, the more we get confused. But if we go deep enough, it will become a little easier to weed out the noise and get to the truth. Stay with me. Believe none of what you hear and half of what you read. If you like the show... I would like to encourage you to help support the show. You can help me out with just $3 a month. Just go to the website and click on support. I would really appreciate the help and would be happy to give you a shout out. Do you have a UFO story that you would like to share? Is there a UFO story that you'd like for me to look into? Just send me an email at UFOAndAliensPodcast.com. At gmail.com. That's UFO and AND, Aliens Podcast at gmail.com. I'm Rick Black, and I'll talk to you next time.